This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Digital Show on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Kevin Werbach. And we are back for our final live show with the hosts from the three and a half plus years of The Digital Show. I'm Kevin Werbach. Uh, we also have in studio Kartik Sanagar, my colleague at Wharton, and Lauren Feldman from Forbes. Uh, we were joined in the first hour by uh, our former host, Reed Hunt. We've been having a uh, conversation led by one of the hosts in each segment talking about different issues in technology. As always, uh, if you have any thoughts, comments, we'd love to bring you into the conversation. The number again, one 942 7866 Next up, my colleague Kartik Sanagar. Thanks, Kevin. So, you know, it's our last show, and I thought uh, I'd kind of uh, revisit some of the uh, segments uh, we've done over the last two, three years. And uh, a couple of them uh, stood out for me in terms of uh, topics that are still relevant today and, and, and arguably will be even more relevant going forward. And one of them that I wanted to start off is the uh, start off with is the issue of AI ethics. Um, and so, of course, the idea is that Algorithms and, in particular, uh, artificial intelligence-based algorithms are increasingly making more and more decisions for us uh, these days. And so, when it comes to human decision makers, we expect them to uh, embody certain ethical standards that we all hold. But really, what do we expect in terms of ethical standards from these AI-based systems is is an issue that I want to uh, discuss. But before we do that, maybe uh, I'll request uh, Tatiana to play a clip uh, where Eric Horvitz, who is uh, uh, head of uh, research at Microsoft uh, Research, actually came on the show and, and shared his views on, on AI ethics. We often, and I think for good, with good reason, think about some of these dilemmas like, you know, should my automated car in microseconds have a policy uh, for deciding about whether to to uh, optimize or, or maximize them, the the, uh, the 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 chance that the the passengers will be safe, um, trading that off with potentially injuring um, pedestrians on the street, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, some of these cases might be considered edge conditions, even though they need to be addressed very carefully compared to the ethics of allowing cars to continue to be the source of about 35,000 deaths in our country and over a million deaths worldwide every year, when we know that the AI technologies overall could be harnessed right now to diminish them greatly, those kinds of deaths, or even in uh, opportunities in healthcare, for example. Um, Recent studies have found that, that in U.S. alone, with good, you know, good, good rationale and estimation, that about um, a quarter of a million people in the U.S. are dying in hospitals because of avoidable, avoidable human error. Mm. And we know that AI systems, decision support tools, um, and alerting systems could make a big cut into those deaths, both in transportation and in healthcare. And so there's a, there's a, there's a meta ethics issue of of um, uh, of around failure to to um, translate to advances in AI out to the real world. Yeah, so I want to ask you guys about both the ethics and the meta ethics uh, issues that we talked about in that segment. But first, uh, you know, what are your reactions to um, ethical standards from these AI based systems? What should we expect, and you know, can we hold them to the same standards we hold for human decision makers? It, it really ties into the conversation that we were having in the earlier segment uh, right. with, with Reed Hunt and. Um, you know, the, the, the point is true that if you, you look in the aggregate at costs and benefits with something like autonomous vehicles, it's pretty clear that there are going to be uh, savings of life. Um, but part of the challenge is that's not the way the legal system works. Legal system addresses things case by case. And so if someone is driving their, you know, or sitting in their self driving car and they get in an accident, um, then there's the possibility of liability. There's a possibility of people um, seeing that. There's a chilling effect on the companies. Um, and the, the court doesn't decide what's the aggregate right decision in terms of what technology to develop. It just decides, was there an injury in this case? Um, so 
I think from an ethical standpoint, just thinking about things in terms of first principles, we actually have fairly good mechanisms to talk about these things. Um, but in terms of implementing them in a real world way that uh, makes sense legally um, and that connects in with, with the various business interests, that I think is going to be a lot harder. Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, you know, thinking about it from the perspective of somebody trying to to actually start selling uh, autonomous vehicles on a, a you know, at scale, um, the, all it would take is a couple of problems um, to blow up and just change public opinion about what was happening. And it, it's really easy to imagine that going awry. Uh, and I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read anything. I haven't seen anything. I haven't talked to anybody about the preparation for that. I wonder how much thought is being given to it. Oh, a lot, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, and these companies understand that. I mean, the, the, the challenge partly is the lack of transparency, that you know, most people don't understand what's going on in the black box. And, and if it's a machine learning system, then even the developer of the algorithms, they, they doesn't understand why, you know, why did the car turn at this point and not at that point. Um, well, no, I, I can't tell you that because the machine just learned that based on all this data. And that just makes it very hard to, to reason about in a kind of case-by-case way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's explainab- explainability is going to be an, uh, a big issue over here, which is, um, you know, post hoc. I mean, after it all happened, can you explain why the AI system made the choices it it, it made? And it's going to be hard because, as uh, Kevin was saying, you know, developers are not programming them. You know, increasingly, if you look at if we are talking about autonomous uh, vehicles, the driving policy for most of these autonomous vehicles actually is pretty much all learned. It's not that the driving policy. It used to be the case when I was doing a, my PhD. It used to be the case that the researchers there were coming up with a with the driving policy. They were creating a hierarchy of rules. So they had rules like, for example, uh, do not cross the yellow. Don't uh, uh, go in the opposite direction. If you see somebody in front of you, uh, even though it's a green stop. Um, and then they had a hierarchy to say, don't hit somebody, takes precedence over, uh, you know, say some other rule and, and things like that. But, you know, the problem with those systems is you cannot, for a, for a task as complicated as driving, um, you cannot come up with all the rules as a developer, you come up with a thousand rules and you'll still have missed a uh, hundred important rules. And so when they switched to these machine learning based systems, they, the performance of these systems just went up dramatically and they're able to drive on their own. But what's been happening is machine learning as a field itself has been moving from models that were easier to understand, you know, more statistical kind of models to what are known as deep learning models or neural nets, which even the developers are kind of just you know, it's viewing it as a black box system and you provide a data and it, uh, you know, it learns from the data. And it's very hard to go back to one of these companies um, later and say, okay, explain to me why this car decided to run over these 25 people. Um, and it's going to be very hard to explain. It's just like the, as Kevin said, it's just like the conversation we were having with Reed. How do you go to Facebook and say, "Explain to me why you let the Russians hack?" Post hoc is a a tough conversation. Yeah, and the, I think the autonomous car is actually in some ways the easy case yeah. because everyone knows cars can kill people. Everyone knows cars can get into accidents, and yeah. and so that's something that that everyone is thinking about, and and the person sitting in the car is aware that that's a risk. What's the risk of using machine learning to pick the Facebook news feed? Oh, yeah, there's there's no downside in that. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, what's what's the risk in using these machine learning algorithms to decide whether to grant people loans and to do credit yeah. scoring or to uh, make HR decisions about whom to hire? And yeah, you know, we're we're learning more and more that all these situations um, there are there are biases in the data often that get pulled into the models in ways we don't understand. Um, there's questions about privacy and access to the, to the data and so forth. So I, I think, frankly, it's more the – I don't want to say insidious. Maybe that sounds too negative. But, but you know, in some ways, it's right, the sort of insidious way that this technology is seeping into everything um, that, that is going to be more of a problem than things like the autonomous vehicles where we can really see it coming and have a big conversation about it. Right. And and to your point, it's there in, in so many domains. One uh, other domain that got a lot of attention uh, recently was uh, their use in – 
sentencing algorithms and in uh, recidivism algorithms, which are algorithms to figure out whether uh, somebody would reoffend. And in this instance, what happened was that uh, these algorithms um, do not consider race as a variable uh, when they compute scores for whether a person is likely to reoffend or not. But uh, an investigation by uh, ProPublica showed that they had a very significant race bias. They had a very high uh, false positive rate uh, with African Americans in sort of predicting uh, high likelihood of uh, uh, committing the crime again. And so they showed that it had a bias, even though race was not a variable. And again, this is because you know, there are biases in data for various reasons, and that goes into the algorithm as well, even though the algorithm has not been programmed to reflect those biases. So it's going to be everywhere. And I think, you know, it, this to me means that, you know, whether we're talking about regulators, but also, you know, you and I and individual users of these technologies will need to get really savvy about, you know, when algorithms are around us making decisions for us, what do we need to know before we hand over the ability or right to make the decision from ourselves to the algorithm? You know, even simple things like, you know, who I date, who I marry increasingly is going to be driven by an right. algorithm that says, hey, you should date this person and not that person, right? Right. No, I, I saw something, a, a study recently came out that, that said they've, they've actually now are able to show ju just with the kind of uh, Match.com and eHarmony kind of dating services that, that the the patterns of who people marry, <coughs> excuse me, have changed actually in material ways because of the technology, let alone some of these more sophisticated kinds of matching algorithms. It, it's actually altered uh, the nature of the, the human race, really, um, in ways that people didn't understand. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, one one um, example I go back to uh, to your point, Kevin, is uh, one of the chief scientists at Match.com was once saying that they found that their algorithm improved a lot when they started ignoring what people said they wanted. So what was happening was they would ask people their preferences. You know, what do you want? And you would kind of say, okay, I want this uh, person who goes to church, and I want this person who's got this particular education, who lives in this town, and is uh, within five miles of my address. And they would show people a bunch of options, but they didn't actually... It turns out want to date them. Whereas when they when the algorithm started taking over uh, and recommending people based on observed behavior rather than stated preferences, it was doing better. Um, and and so yeah, lots going on. I think that all reinforces Kevin's great point before about <laughs> autonomous cars being the the easy case, uh, not just for the reason you said about you know we all know that cars uh, can kill people, but also if something goes wrong, there's a body. <laughs> we'll see it. With the examples you're raising now about, you know, who is going to, you know, commit crimes again, who's going to get uh, to date somebody, who's going to get uh, credit, uh, you, it could be years before anybody knows there's even a problem. Yeah, I think we are really now putting too much of a burden on people. It relates somewhat to what you were talking about, Lauren, in the previous segment about, uh, you know, small business owners can't even figure out how to use what is now fairly old and established web technology we have this expectation that people can adapt and understand these things. And, and in some cases, like the, the machine learning that you're talking about, Cardiac, they, 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 the data just, the information isn't there, and you need to reason about it in a very different way and understand how the system is built. But even without that, I think it's just a different understanding of how decisions get made. And ultimately, uh, I think it's too much to, I mean, yes, people need to be more savvy, and yes, they need to appreciate it. Um, that's not going to be enough, and that's I think we, we really need to have these legal and regulatory conversations, and and also just conversations about ethical responsibility. So, yeah. if you are a company that's deploying this technology, um, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. Of course, you should do it if it can enhance your uh, business that you're running. But you need to stop and think: what are the possible consequences? Am I communicating this appropriately to my customers? A am I using their data uh, in a trustworthy way that they would appreciate? Um, you know, if, if you ask people, you know, basically I often say to companies, well, if you went to the customers or the users and say, uh, you know, say to them, here's exactly what we're doing and, and with your data and how we're doing it and what we're using it for and so forth, would they be okay with it? If, if they say, well, well, no, actually, they would really freak out, but, you know, we know better, we just, we don't tell them, that's a problem. You need, you need to be willing to be transparent. Uh, and so I think companies need to take some responsibility, too. 
Yeah, I agree. You know, the analogy I like to share in my classroom is that it's now, you've got to think of it like uh, prescription drugs. So, you know, they, they serve a purpose, but they have side effects we need to be aware of. And there's a whole regulatory mechanism uh, that's focused on let's understand what can go wrong. Uh, before you actually release it for its intended effect, I want to fully understand what can go wrong. And I want you to report it. I want you to report what's inside it. I want you to report all the things you observed that went wrong with it. And then the consumer also has to use it responsibly. Uh, and so I think it's, it might be similar with these kinds of technologies where regulation has to come in and say, before you actually release it to the consumer, I want to know what's in it. I want to know what kind of data was used to train it. I want to use all of that. And then the consumer also needs to be wiser about it. So the FDA needs to be the Federal Department of Algorithms now, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Digital Show on Sirius XM Business Radio. Uh, I'm Kevin Werbeck here with uh, fellow co-hosts and former co-hosts of the show, Kartik Osanagar and Lauren Feldman, for our final live show. You can give us a call anytime, 1-844-942-7866. I guess it's a good time to also switch gears. Uh, um, you know, uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, algorithms and, and ethics around AI. Um, but I think we were also talking about social media earlier, and we were talking about social media, uh, particularly in the context of uh, fake news and the whole, uh, you know, Russia controversy. But there's also a lot more to social media beyond the fake news and the manipulation. There's also the echo chamber issue. Uh, which has nothing to do with, uh, you know, uh, illegal manipulation by anyone, but it's uh, a reality of uh, being caught up in, in, in these echo chambers. So I'm going to quickly uh, ask Tatiana again to play a, a clip from a show that we did um, right after the November 2016 election. There's a filter bubble that is created by personalization algorithms on Google News or newsfeed algorithms on Facebook and Twitter um, and essentially all that personalization does is it creates an echo chamber where we see stuff that we are engaging with um, and that is consistent with what we believe and we engage with it more and therefore we see even more of stuff we believe in and so you're lost in an echo chamber. In fact, there are uh, academic and research studies that show that if you have a certain view and you're surrounded by people with a similar view, then that viewpoint will become stronger and even more polarized, and you'll lose the ability to um, see the other perspective. And so the fear is that's what's happening. And in fact, you know, it's it's obvious why echo chambers are a problem. As we have seen just in the U.S. since the rise of uh, Fox News and MSNBC uh, and other outlets that uh, share primarily one perspective— a social discourse suffers when people have a very narrow information base uh, and they cannot understand each other's perspectives. But the question is, is it happening? Is it happening more on the Internet or not? You know, so it, it's this, again, the, what the Internet promised was a global village and uh, instead are we becoming balkanized? And I think uh, certainly over the last year, that's the sense we've all had. Uh, but I want to ask you guys, what's your take on... Um, you know, the, the social media echo chamber, whether, um, you know, last year's election where all of us kind of, a lot of people said, oh, I didn't see it coming. Uh, you know, my friends uh, seem to uh, have a certain viewpoint that was consistent with mine. I didn't see this coming. Was that an, an aberration, an exception? Or is this a, a really, uh, is this something that we're going to see more and more of on, on the Internet uh, with this extreme polarization and echo chambers? It's a huge problem. So we're, we're going to see more of it, um, partly because there is this natural property of homophily. People want to talk to people like them, and the technology lets them get that um, in ways that ultimately aren't in their interest. And, and part of it, again, comes back to the business model that if companies monetize based on advertising and engagement, um, then they want to create these very um, homogeneous groups um, that get very passionate about things and, and, and talk to each other a lot. Again, it comes back to responsibility. And that's partly what we've, we've talked about before, responsibility of the companies and, and so forth, but also individual responsibility. So you know, I make a personal effort on Twitter, which I use a lot as my sort of primary news source, to follow lots of people not like me. Uh, and some of not like me means women of color because I'm a white man. Some of not like me means 
conservative viewpoints because I'm more on the progressive side. Some of not like me means people who aren't in the tech industry but are in totally different industries. Um, and I find that amazingly enlightening uh, because those are people who I wouldn't have heard from before you know, in the pre-internet days. Um, it's not like I would hear about them necessarily in, in the newspapers I was reading. Um, and there's this opportunity to, to educate yourself in new ways. But most people don't do that. Um, and again, it's probably too much to ask most people to do that. Um, so I, I think you know, we need work to educate people about the possibilities as users of social media. Uh, and we also need to make it the case that, that companies don't think that they're just going to take the straightest line to putting people in the narrowest echo chamber boxes. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. I think, you know, we here uh, probably do more of that in terms of reaching out for other viewpoints than most people do, but a lot of people don't do it at all. And, you know, the, just I don't see any way to regulate that or legislate that. Uh, I talk to business owners. You can, you can teach it, though. And maybe that's maybe for those of us that are, maybe, that are teachers. Yeah. Maybe, but that's, that's a, got a long horizon <laughs> before yeah. that pays off. Uh, I talk to business owners all the time, and um, it's – I've come to realize more recently that uh, I look at the world uh, differently than they do. And, it, you know, it's something I've been aware of for a long time. It's more acute today than it uh, ever has been. I was in a I participated in a conversation after the election uh, in Atlanta that was largely it was for a group of entrepreneurs, largely about Obamacare and what was going to happen to health care. And it was I, I tried to make a couple of points that I thought were just facts that everybody was aware of and I almost got booed off the stage because what was fact for me was not fact for the people in the room and um, I, you know, that was one very small example of I think a very big problem and if we have to wait for you guys to teach people <laughs> we're, we're in for a lot of pain for the next couple of decades I'm afraid <laughs> we are yeah. You know, so I, I, I guess partly there's a techno technological solution, right? And I think Facebook uh, did sort of uh, uh, accept that they have, they're partly to br blame, although initially they, they resisted it. But they did change their news feed. Now they supposedly try and share other viewpoints. So when a friend of yours shares a news story right below it, you will see two, three other related news stories. And uh, apparently... They try and look at the sentiment and the political inclination of the news story that a friend shared and then try and share another news story that might uh, have a, a differing sentiment or, or political leaning. So there's a technological solution to it. But I agree with Kevin. I think at the end of the day, uh, technology alone won't be enough because people make conscious decisions. I mean, for example, a lot of people... Uh, will unfriend somebody who has a viewpoint that they don't share, right? And so that's something we do. And then we get surprised when six months later, uh, you know, the election result doesn't match. Or ma match and that's where it's such saying. a problem in, in social media, because if you and I were disagreeing about something here face to face, you're probably not going <laughs> to unfriend you. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if it happens on social media, you remove that human element and people do things they wouldn't normally do. Yeah, although it's becoming more human. And I, I, I agree, this is a huge problem. It's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, I'm optimistic over the long term, though, because the, the, the most savvy person that I know on social media is my 13-year-old daughter. Um, and, and, you know, in very subtle ways, in ways that, you know, she appreciates certain things about privacy, about communities, about you know, the, the effects of all this stuff, um, because she lives it all the time. And, and for them, there is no real boundary between the online world and the offline world. It's it's the same community. Um, yeah, there's tremendous problems with things that kids do online with social media and so forth. Too. I'm not I'm not saying therefore she or young people in general are, are so much better at this, but at least they know it's an issue. They understand that this is something that's not just being broadcast to them, that it's active. And I think they're going to push in the kinds of services they want going forward for things that give them more controls and give them more of a view of the world. But but yeah, that that's going to take time. And that's, you know, again, we keep coming back to this in the medium term. You need uh, government, you need organizations, companies coming together and taking responsibility uh, and saying, yeah, we, we are creating people's construction of the world. And so we've got to do it responsibly. Yeah. So we have to take a break in about three, four minutes. So let me ask you guys one final question on this, which is uh, something that I've been grappling with. 
do you guys believe that a company like Facebook should be regulated as a media company or as a technology company? Especially in light of all the things that we've talked about today. So I think part of the problem is that we have these broad categories that don't really work anymore. So it's it's both, right? There is no media company that's not a technology company, and, and there's no technology company at, at that scale that's not some you know, public uh, consumer-facing technology company that's not some kind of a media company. So I, I think the challenge goes to you know, we have these rules – uh, and, you know, and Reed was talking. Uh, Reed Hunt was talking in the early segment about the First Amendment. So we've got a whole lot of law in the First Amendment. We've also got a set of rules um, that are basically safe harbors that protect information service companies from liability for what their users do, which which made a lot of sense to to protect them from you know, being responsible for some random person posts something illegal that they don't even know about. Um, but in this world where they actually are shaping people's views, I, I think we need to step back from that somewhat. So I, ultimately, we're going to need something new uh, because the old media company rules were designed for very different kinds of industries than the one we have today. It's hard for me to even get my mind around that question right now at this point in time when regulations are falling by the wayside. The thought that we might figure out a new way to re regulate an existing company just seems so unlikely. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, I think we'll see this play out, right? Because uh, I agree with you, Lauren, which is I don't see this new regulatory framework. Uh, this administration is not going to be moved by the current controversy to, to regulate Facebook more um, aggressively, I don't think. Sure, but you look at just how mad people are at the system. Uh, and the system is partly the government. The system is partly the you know the big banks. But the system is now partly Google and Facebook. Right. Uh, they're no longer just these happy-go-lucky young upstarts. Uh, I, th I think people see that as well. And so there's there's a lot of frustration out there. No, you're right. I mean, it's not nothing's going to change in terms of you know, regulatory policy anytime soon. Um, but I think there's a lot of pressure there. But are they going to get away with, uh, we're a technology company, these are our algorithms, how long will they get away with that? So I don't think that's, I actually don't think that's how they think. Um, that, that's where I was trying to push Reed Hunt, uh, you know, I was taking issue with what he was saying. Um, they they don't want to go home to their kids and say, you know, what, what did you do today, daddy? Well, I let the Russians hack American democracy and, you know, uh, cause people to be in these echo chambers and so forth. They want to do good for the world. They want to make money and so forth and you know, have big influence. But but they want to feel like they're doing something good. And, and, and I think a lot of them are starting to wake up. They, they don't know how to process it. It's sort of like where you were like, what, what does this exactly mean? And what, you know, it's, it's hard to wrestle with. Um, but at least I, I hear a lot of the you know the Silicon Valley CEOs at least saying, uh, okay, yeah, this is not what we signed up for. Um, you know, the hard question is then, well, what do you what do you do next? I agree with you that I I don't think that was their goal, and I don't think anybody, <laughs> um, I don't think anybody working at Facebook thought they were uh, affecting sure. the election uh, deliberately. Um, but I don't, you know. From a consumer perspective, from the perspective of entrepreneurs and businesses who are dependent on these huge platforms, I think that whole idea of do no evil is being questioned today in a way it never has been before. And w whether they're really trying to do good in the world, I think, is, is an open question that a lot of people are eager to see answered. All right. Well, we're going to need to take one more quick break uh, before we come back for our last segment. It's been uh, another great conversation. Once again, you're listening to The Digital Show here on Sirius XM Business Radio, our final live show. And after just a short break, we will have our final segment. So stick around. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the wrap-up of The Digital Show. We have been on the air on this show uh, since January of 2014, um, almost four years. This was actually the very first show that was broadcast uh, on the first day of uh, Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, and it's been uh, an amazingly fun ride. And so once again, uh, for this last uh, segment, this last show, we've brought back all four hosts from the show. We had in the first hour with us Reed Hunt, the former FCC chairman, who was one of our original hosts. I'm Kevin Werbach from the Wharton School. And here with me in the studio, we still have Kartik Osanagar, my colleague at Wharton, and Lauren Feldman from Forbes. 
So I'm going to lead uh, this last half hour's conversation. And uh, what I thought I would do is um, pose uh, for uh, the other two hosts some some general questions about uh, how things have evolved in the time we've been doing the show. Uh, in some ways, not that long a period of time, but things move so fast in technology that in some ways uh, things are very different. So let me just ask each of you first, um, what do you think is the biggest thing that's changed in tech or biggest new development uh, either way since uh, three, four years ago? Kartik, what do you think? Well, there are many candidates, right? So if technology, the, the pace of change is so rapid. If I were to pick one where, you know, the change has been quite dramatic over the last three, four years and it's going to have a huge impact, I would go with actually not information tech, but in the biotech space. So specifically things like CRISPR technology, which is for editing uh, genomes and so on. The cost has come down so dramatically uh, that, uh, you know, scientists can actually edit uh, genes uh, in the embryo. And so I think, uh, you know, this is becoming so accessible and it opens up so many possibilities. Many uh, amazing rosy possibilities, right? Like fixing a lot of uh, genetic def defects uh, uh, early. Uh, but it, of course, also opens up, uh, you know, possibilities that one could worry about as well. You know, we don't know where this ability to edit the genome might take us. Um, but but overall, I think uh, for me, the more I've been learning about this, um, it's outside of my comfort zone of information technology. But but the more I've been learning about it, I've been super impressed with the the scope and the uh, the, the potential uh, that this technology has. Okay, Lauren, what do you what would you pick? Uh, well, I, you know, I don't f quite follow technology at the level you guys do. Um, I don't see it on the uh, the cutting edge the way you do or follow it that way. As a journalist, um, I focus more on the everyday social media stuff that we've been already discussing a lot. And um, I think there have been huge changes there that we lose sight of because, you know, it happens quickly quickly in some ways, but it, but it evolves over time. And, you know, one day you wake up and you realize that Instagram is Instagram. And, you know, two years ago, three years ago, we didn't even know that it existed or Snapchat. Um, so th those changes in social media platforms, I think, are what I focus on the most. And I, I guess my real hope is that we got at least one more good one in us. Uh, I think we need another <laughs> social media platform for grownups. Um, I'm, I'm hoping there's something out there that the ones that exist aren't too well established. I think that they all have flaws. We've been discussing many of them already. Uh, there are also other flaws that we, we haven't gotten to yet, uh, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or, or any of the others. I think we need one more. And uh, so that's the technology change that I'm most acutely aware of over the time that we've been doing this show. Um, and that's also where I'd really like to see some more change. Okay, well, I've, it may take us a while to make the connection here, but I think I've got an answer for you. Uh, so here's here's what uh, let's play a clip though first to see. Here's here's what I would say to me is the biggest change, and then I'll get to in a minute why it might actually respond to your question of a need for new platforms. Uh, so can we get the clip from Susan Athey? Another thing that's very interesting about Bitcoin is it actually is sort of a public ledger. Now there's some um, alternative currencies that are coming on that are trying to provide more privacy for the users. But Bitcoin is actually not very private. It's synonymous. So there's, a, there's an address on, on, the, on the blockchain. Nobody knows it's my address unless, well, unless I tell them or unless they figure it out from somebody else who's been transacting with me. But if you could somehow match me and my address, then you can see you know, everything that I'm doing. And that's maybe a negative if you're trying to do something uh, illegal or private. But it might be a positive if you wanted to do something like trace funds as they moved. Say, suppose you wanted to give money in a developing country and you had a big chunk of money. You wanted it to be dispersed in various ways over a period of time. If that money was um, somehow allocated and could only move through a secure public ledger, then we wouldn't have problems of money disappearing or going missing. We would know exactly at the point uh, the money left. Mm -hmm. And that could be quite powerful, um, both for, you know, devel developments, the example I just gave, but even for multinational firms. There was an example not long ago where I think it was City lost something like $300 million 
know, how do you how do you lose you know, Oops, yeah, right, right. But, but that's yeah. that's actually evidence that a lot of our existing systems for moving and keeping track of money even within uh, within a firm are not particularly um, well well functioning especially as you move across borders things can get lost um, you know you might send something and it doesn't arrive and the fact and the fact that you you can't know for sure uh, creates the need for a bunch of expensive, cumbersome systems, all to try to keep track of stuff uh, and make sure that it actually happens. So that was Susan Athey from uh, Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business on one of my shows back in 2014, talking about Bitcoin. And, and I would say, to me, the biggest thing, it's something that was around back then, but it's taken off tremendously since then, especially in the last two years, um, is Bitcoin and, and really the blockchain technology that underlies it, which is a distributed technology for distributed trust and, and distributed ledgers to keep track of things. Um, and the reason I think that that technology um, is also potentially going to help us with what you were talking about, Lauren, is um, I think the the limit of all of these platforms that we have today is that they're centralized. And if someone's in control, then someone's got power and they're going to exercise that power. Um, and the only real alternative is a system that is decentralized where no one is in control and the values in the network and people connect to each other peer to peer and, and build things on top of it. And so what excites me about this blockchain technology, Bitcoin as a as a new kind of currency is just one application of it. It's the opportunity to build these new kinds of distributed network systems, a lot of which are just right now completely experimental. Um, but they're, to me, incredibly exciting. So I know this is you know, something of a buzzword right now uh, with Bitcoin and blockchain and all of that. But I'm curious, uh, the other two of you, um, what your take is on what's happening. Yeah, so I want to for a moment separate Bitcoin from its underlying uh, ledger uh, technology, which is blockchain. So talking about Bitcoin, there's so much buzz around it. Right. And, uh, you know, depending on the day you look at it, Bitcoin is, is worth a lot. Right. Um, highly volatile as well. But I think the problem I have with Bitcoin is while Bitcoin's value has grown a lot over the last several years, most of it is on speculation. So people are just buying Bitcoin on speculation that this will be valuable based on the buzz. But who's actually accepting Bitcoins and who's actually using it? It's so limited. So my concern is, yes, there's a lot of hype around Bitcoin, but in terms of its actual use in the financial systems, uh, it seems to be limited to me. And I'll talk about blockchain in a bit, but I, I, I'm curious to see if you agree uh, and, and what's your take on that. I completely agree. Uh, I think Bitcoin is interesting in lots of ways, and it, it could be a new kind of uh, financial asset class. Um, but it's just the tip of the iceberg and, and really the opportunity. So, so for example, if you think about um, a distributed kind of social media network, if you have a cryptocurrency, one of these decentralized currencies, and it doesn't have to be Bitcoin and probably won't be Bitcoin, but something that allows you to pay people for contributing content and, and pay out uh, journalists and, and you know, have advertisers pay in and different you know, money flowing through the system in a decentralized way, that's what potentially gets you over this hump that everything has to get aggregated for an advertiser and for a big platform. So, yeah, to me, that's the exciting part is this, this blockchain idea. Lauren, what's your thought? Uh, I think I agree with what I think Kartek's about <laughs> to say, which is that blockchain is the big deal going forward. And uh, that was driven home for me earlier this year. I had a conversation with an entrepreneur who's got a company started that's using blockchain uh, technology for tickets to big events, uh, like sporting events. And I hadn't even realized this. Uh, it makes perfect sense. But there, there's a huge problem with people showing up with multiple copies of a printed out ticket for an event. And the first person who gets there gets the seed and everybody else gets turned away and can be very upset using the blockchain because it you know, proves definitively who the owner is, you can solve that problem. But it also opens up all kinds of other possibilities because for the first time, the, um, the, the company that has sold these tickets now knows who the customers are and can keep that data and can reach out to them and try to sell them other things. And, you know, they can learn things about those customers, whether they, you know, how often they go to sporting events, what kind of merchandise they like to buy, those kinds of things, whether they want to be served something at the event. So 
that's just one tiny example of where I think blockchain is going, where I think Kartik was about to go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think blockchain uh, does sound exciting. I've heard of several instances of companies, financial services companies, for example, that had a centralized accounting uh, system or a centralized trust sort of system that said, hey, we're going to use blockchain to reduce the cost and overhead associated with it. So I do see some of that. It makes sense. I know Kevin has been looking into this a lot. So I have a question for you, Kevin, which is, um, you know, while I hear a lot about this, I would love to hear uh, a concrete example or two of companies switching uh, from a centralized kind of system to a blockchain kind of system. So, like, say an example from financial services, and I'd love to hear outside of that setting as well. Um, how many hours do you have? <laughs> so, no, <laughs> so I asked you for two, one no, each. No, no, I know. There's, there's, ton, <laughs> there's tons and tons of pilot. The, the reality is there's lots of proofs of concept and lots of pilot projects, very few serious commercial deployments at scale. There's, there's startups doing things and so forth. Um, but but it's being explored in, in every context you can think of. So lots of interesting supply chain applications um, where companies are using this distributed ledger, sort of along the lines of what Lauren talked about, where you need to have a kind of universal truth about what's going on in a way that you can track it across your supply chain. So companies like Maersk and Walmart, which are very, very good at running global supply chains, are, are looking at this technology because it's more efficient for them. Um, and, you know, and, and so that's that's just one category of applications. But, but what do they specifically do? Like, let's say Walmart. What is it doing with its suppliers using blockchain? So it's creating a distributed ledger. So instead of a central database which it controls, um, which you then have to get everyone onto the database and and keep track of the information, they have to give up their information to you, which is potentially a problem where you've got companies that are competitors and multiple supply chains and so forth. It creates one virtual ledger that multiple companies run the network itself, um, and then they can see in real time what's going on across their supply chain. Well, again, um, you know, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around. You know, previously you had an EDI system or something. You had all of this information in a centralized place. You say, okay, I don't need it in a centralized place. So what is this ledger actually tracking, and what are they trying to um, verify in real time using these distributed ledgers? It's tracking whatever you want to track. So it's it's not changing the, the application. It's just changing the way you share the data. Yeah, but what's an example? Let's say Walmart or whoever. What is it that they want oh, to Walmart, do? Yeah, so Walmart is doing trials. They're, they're tracking pork products coming from farms in China and uh, things like mangoes. What, what, what they want to be able to do, this was initially for food safety. Um, their head of food safety uh, said to his team, he, he took a, a, you know, some mangoes off the shelf and said, here's the barcode. Let's say someone got, bought these and got sick. Which farm did this come from? Okay. Uh, and how they, did it get here? Right. How did it get here? Okay. And the whole team, this is Walmart, they're incredibly sophisticated, took them a week to figure it out, working nonstop. So that's not good enough. A week to figure out where it came from? People have gotten sick and we don't know where it's coming from. They, this blockchain trial that they did with a distributed ledger platform, they got that down to about two seconds. So that's that's a real world use case. Yeah. It's yeah. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Uh, now, now, that's not, that, you know, again, that's Walmart doing its supply chain. It's not some sort of exotic kind of new AI-powered thing. Yeah, but it's nice. It's very tangible. Yeah. It's very concrete. Um, so I, I was looking for something like good. that. Okay. So that's good. Did I satisfy you? Okay, good. Yeah. We, you know, we'll, we'll do the other one after the show if you want a second one. Because <laughs> uh, we actually um, are uh, just about uh, uh, coming to the uh, end of our uh, segment. So uh, I want to first uh, just let anyone know, if you just tuned in at the very, very end of the show, that this is the digital show on SiriusXM Business Radio, and you're listening to our final live show. Um, and so I have one more clip um, that I want to play, um, and uh, then I know Kartik has to leave us uh, a few minutes early uh, to go catch a train. Uh, and I wanted to play a clip. Uh, as I said, um, the digital show was the first show on business radio, uh, and so this is a clip from the very first guest on the very first show on business radio, who was John Hagel, a longtime tech industry consultant, was for many years at McKinsey, and now is at something called the Deloitte Center for the Edge. So here's John Hagel's take on how technology has and hasn't affected business. We asked the question of just how are, how are companies performing? Uh, and we looked at all U.S. public companies, not a sample, but every single listed company. Uh, we took as our measure of performance, and one can debate whether it's perfect, we think it's good enough, uh, we took as our measure return on assets. 
And we looked back from 1965, a few years before digital technology really became uh, available in the business world, and fast forwarded to today. And basically, the bottom line is return on assets has collapsed over this time period. It's declined by 75%. So the key message that we take from this are two, two implications for business. One is that pressure has been mounting. It's been a long-term sustained mounting of pressure above and beyond the cycles, the economic cycles that we tend to focus on. Uh, and secondly, that companies have been noticeably unsuccessful in responding to that pressure. A uh, decline of 75% over this time frame, no sign of it leveling off, no sign of it turning around, is a pretty strong message that there are some changes going on that we need to be much more focused on addressing uh, that go beyond the short-term uh, events that we tend to get distracted by. So, Kartik, you're the technology professor. How can that be? <laughs> well, this, this has been a big debate, right? So, uh, Again, hard to cover it in two minutes, but um, you know, th there's many things that are relevant here. But but two things that I'll mention. The first one is there's a lot of new value being created by technology that doesn't get measured by the traditional uh, metrics we use uh, for whether it's the economy like GDP or whether it's even for a company revenues and so on. Right, so. Um, think of something like Wikipedia, you know, the amazing amount of value created for consumers, uh, but in terms of its impact on GDP, it's going to be low. Um, but there's many such things that um, have been, that technology has helped create over the last several years, but that doesn't get um, measured in the formal sort of uh, calculations. So I think that's, that's one. Um, you know, so... Uh, let me pause there with that. I, I I don't believe this 75 person number reflects the reality. Um, so there's a lot of it not being captured. And, um, you know, I, I think the real issue, though, is not so much for me, at least, it's not so much that uh, there's a decline of 75 percent uh, in terms of return of uh, on assets. It is that it's been the returns have been inconsistent. That, for example, the return on capital is so much higher than the return on labor, or even return on capital in certain industries it's tremendous, in some other areas it's not. So it's the uneven returns that, to me, is the bigger issue in the economy. Uh, but again, I, I'd recommend people look up. You know, a Andy McAfee and, and Eric Brynjolfsson had this uh, very interesting book. I think four or five years back. Uh, was it called uh, Rise of the Machines or Age of the Machines or something like that? Race where, Against the Machines. Race Against the mm -hmm. Machine, thank you. Yep. Where they were trying to essentially address this issue, you know, is it, you know, what's the net impact of these machines on things ranging from return on assets to GDP to employment to income inequality and so on, an excellent resource that I'd, I'd mentioned. But uh, again, my view is that this statistic is a bit misleading because the fundamental drivers of value have changed in the information economy, and uh, the old uh, asset-driven economy is not w the economy we are in today. All right. Well, you're still an optimist, and that's that's good to hear. <laughs> um, so, Kartik, I know you have to run. Uh, thank you so much for co-hosting the show with us uh, over the last three and a half years. Yeah, no, thanks, uh, Kevin. Thanks, uh, Lauren. It was uh, fun co-hosting with uh, both of you. Uh, and, of course, thanks very much to our listeners. You know, the show wouldn't happen without you guys. While this is our last live show, you know, the conversation can certainly continue. So I'm hoping it will continue. I will be back on this channel uh, as a guest uh, in the future. Um, I'm hoping in many instances. So hopefully the conversation continues. But it can also co continue online. I'm on Twitter at uh, K. Hosanagar. Um, and uh, hopefully the dialogue continues. But again, thank you both very much. Uh, it has been a great pleasure co-hosting with you guys. Wonderful. Our pleasure. Uh, so, Lauren, uh, let me turn it over to you. Uh, I think part of this conversation relates to what you were saying earlier on in the show about the fact that on the small business side, um, you know, there's all this great technology and these these fancy new systems, but people can't necessarily even use them. So, so maybe you know, Kartik was saying across the economy as a whole, we're just not capturing the gains that are actually being made. Do you think in the small business world, we're actually not getting all the gains that we think we're getting? Um. Well, one thing, 
that clip I just think just showed what a great thing you guys created here. Uh, that was such a fascinating thought. Um, I wish I'd seen it sooner. I wish I'd had time to uh, to ask some uh, some more people about it because it's it's just a, a, a fascinating consideration. I think that's clearly right with small business. There, there's no question that um, technology is a double-edged sword. Uh, there are, you know, it's creative destruction. People are uh, thriving because of it, and people are dying because of it. And and maybe to some extent, that's the answer to the 75%, whether that's the right figure or not. Um, you know, I I kind of wonder about that. That's 75%. That, that, that figure was return on assets for existing companies. All this technology, if it's coming from companies that didn't previously exist, maybe that explains why uh, the existing companies are seeing a decline in performance. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's the case with small businesses as well. Um, they're, uh, especially the more traditional ones, they're the ones that struggle the most with this. All right. Well, so we've got three minutes left where we have to go off the air. So uh, any uh, quick final thoughts, and then I will wrap it up. Uh, well, primarily, uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I have started doing uh, a different show here, Thursdays at 1 o'clock, called Mind Your Business, where we do focus on entrepreneurs and small business owners. I hope you and Kartik will come see me and uh, continue to uh, appear on this uh, on this station. Um, but that show is more focused on uh, getting people to call in and talk about what they're struggling uh, with their business. Um, that's you know that's been my focus here and there. Um, but again, thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. No, it's been great to host with you. Uh, and uh, I'll wrap it up again. I'm Kevin Werbeck. Uh, it's been delightful to have this opportunity to, opportunity to do this uh, and to hear from uh, listeners uh, online uh, and uh, on the phones. Um, it, it, it's been fun, um, but it's also been an educational experience. Uh, I think one of the things about technology is that it's always changing. Uh, and even if you're someone like me who spends his whole life studying these developments, uh, there's always something new and there's always something interesting. And you always get different perspectives, especially talking to people. And that's what's so great about uh, doing this show over the last nearly four years is, is getting that opportunity to interact with guests and, and hear what they're thinking and their perspective on things. So um, I have enjoyed it as well. Um, like Cardick, you can also, uh, you'll hear me on the station uh, in, in other contexts, I'm sure in the future. You can follow me on Twitter at KWERB, K-W-E-R-B. Uh, and let me just do a few quick thank yous before we wrap up. Uh, thank you uh, again to uh, our four co-hosts, um, Kevin Werbeck, Kartik Kosanagar, Lauren Feldman, and Reed Hunt. Um, thanks also to the folks uh, on the other side of the glass who make this possible. Tatiana Zamis, who's our uh, audio engineer, Dana Cash and Michelle Stucker, who are our producers on the show, Patty Hall, who's been the program director, uh, and also special thanks to Carl Ulrich, uh, my uh, other colleague at Wharton, who really took the initiative on getting the station off the ground. Uh, it's been uh, exciting and fun, uh, and uh, it's uh, certainly an opportunity that I've appreciated. We hope that uh, we've uh, given all of you out there listening uh, a little bit of uh, knowledge and some things to think about, uh, and we hope that you keep listening um, to the station. We have lots of other great shows, which will keep uh, going on. Lauren talked about his, uh, but there are many other shows on different business topics. Uh, as Kartik said a couple times earlier in the show, the conversation continues, uh, and we are honored that we've been part of it over the last three years uh, and uh, seven or eight, nine months, something like that. So thanks again for listening. For the last time, this is The Digital Show on Sirius XM Business Radio. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.